0: Welcome to episode 231 of Live Happy Now. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, thanking you for joining us. If you feel like the world is moving a whole lot faster these days, you're not alone. We're consuming information at an unprecedented rate, and we're staying connected 24-7. And it's no secret that that's taking a toll on our health, our relationships, and our overall well-being. Today's guest, Jeff Bethke, looks at how this fast pace is zapping our sense of purpose and meaning. His new book, To Hell with the Hustle, Reclaiming Your Life in an Overworked, Overspent, and Overconnected World, looks at how we can shift our focus from our online life to our inward life and find greater purpose and meaning. Jeff, welcome to Live Happy Now.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, you talk about a book for our times. Um, I know that your new book is written for millennials, but it really applies to anyone who's overextended in today's world. And I think that's just about all of us.
1: It is. It is. I mean, I think, yeah, definitely the core is definitely to more kind of my peers, I would say, you know, generationally millennials at the peak of this problem. But at the end of the day… Because I get pretty heavy in the book, actually, on some deep dives on some research and the industrial revolution and the light bulb and our concept of time. And when you really dig into it, a lot of this is actually not a millennial problem. It's a Western problem. There's a lot like we kind of have created this moment. This is the logical conclusion of about a 100 or 200 year build. But yeah, that's the essence of the book is that this pain point that we're all feeling for sure right now.
0: What inspired you to write it. There had to be some sort of trigger, I'm guessing, that made you think, all right, I got to address this.
1: Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, my own life, that same thing I talked about in this, you know, I think that's the first paragraph of the book of just, you know, kind of basically our narrative became basically what everyone's narrative was that kind okay, what I kind of say is the trajectory the American dream puts you on is actually a deeply toxic, corrosive, and problematic one, because it only exacerbates this, right? You're supposed to get a bigger and bigger house the more you get older, a bigger and bigger mortgage. You're supposed to get a bigger and bigger job and climb the ladder so that you're going to get busier and busier. You're supposed to have kids and then more and more kids. And then as those kids get older and older, then they're going to have more and more activities. So the literal trajectory of our ideal Western selves is one that actually kind of only puts you on this treadmill of exhaustion, burnout, and basically frying yourselves to death and kind of totally commodifying yourself and um, kind of killing your humanness.
0: So when did you realize that and realize you also had a solution that you wanted to present?
1: I think, yeah, for me, you know, as a follower of Jesus, that's where I first came back to and kind of just said, man, what is, you know... Does Jesus show us something here that's antithetical? Because when you do, whether you, you know believe in Jesus or don't, obviously historical figure 2,000 years ago had a massive impact more than almost anyone else in human history. And it's clear from the text that we have of him, historically speaking, that he seemed to be a non-anxious presence. There seemed to be a way in which he went about his life that was non-hurried, that was non-hustled, and that that actually led to the flourishing of his own humanness and then blessed all those around him. So going back to that, is there something in him that he can teach us. And that's basically the essence of the book. And and I say, yes. And and I think there's uh, kind of this reclaiming or this recalling of, you can call them spiritual disciplines. You can call them kind of practices for life, but recalling ourselves to things like silence and Sabbath and solitude and obscurity and all these different things that actually we kind of now see as a curse, but historically actually have been a blessing to some people. um, And actually are the things that kind of fill you up to be able to resist against those pressures I just mentioned.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that first caught my attention was your statement that information is killing us. And I found that whole chapter of your book really interesting. Um, can you tell us what it is you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I, I'm i trying to remember the exact stat I have in the book, but I think it's something to the effect of like, you know, two days worth of information now currently in 2019. Like we consume more in two days than like a whole someone in medieval times would have consumed their whole life in regards to just data that we have to read and perceive. And that's like, it's making us, I think we kind of need to think of information like calories or think about it like alcohol, like it's making us obese, it's making us drunk. (laughs) Um, And we're not, you know, so we're stumbling around with just like overstimulation, you know, overstuffing our metaphorical faces and it's killing us, right? It's not real. It's not human the way we actually engage with information. We're kind of trying to treat ourselves like robots when we're not and kind of just, you know, we're trying to treat ourselves like computers that just download software. But that's not how humanness works. That's not how real life works, right? We're people of process. We're flesh beings who kind of the process itself is just as important as sometimes the results.
0: But it's difficult when you're in a situation where you're expected to keep up and you're expected to take on all this information and and process it and be able to spit it back out at work or, or however your life situation is. So how do you balance that intake of information with being able to find some solitude, being able to separate yourself from that?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I think because we feel the pressures and then we say, what can we do about it? Right. And I think. I tell people like two things and they seem contradictory, but they're not. The first one is don't be afraid to make drastic changes where you aren't afraid to actually make the changes for your health and flourishing. Because a lot of us, we aren't willing to make those big changes that we know will actually, you know, change our life, right? Maybe it is quit a job. Maybe it is move across the country. Maybe it is move back in with family. Maybe it is, you know, say no to a relationship you're in, whatever it is. So I think drastic changes you need to realize actually can bring some of the most drastic results. And then two, small incremental changes one by one are what actually change you over 50 years. So don't also think that you have to kind of like change your whole life in like a, you know, just seven different things all at once. But actually just slowly but steadily kind of um pulling yourself in the right direction of your habits and you'll be a new person in 10 years.
0: Yeah, you know, we recently had Tiffany Schlain on the show and she talks about unplugging. She takes a tech Shabbat. and you know, She's of the yeah. Jewish faith and takes a, you know, unplugs every week for a full day. So your book kind of addresses that too, in the sense of being able to step away from it and give yourself some time to breathe. How does that affect you when you let yourself do that?
1: Yeah, we do the same thing. And we actually have a whole chapter on Sabbath and we talk about the practice of Sabbath, its historical roots, what it can mean for us today. And yeah, we take a technological Sabbath as well. I turn my phone off for a day a week and some people just think that's crazy, right? But I'm like, do you do realize that like, you know, that's basically how all of human history's lived. All of time, uh, mm-hmm. so it's really not that crazy at all. I think that's the first thing too is we don't realize like we just assume that everyone should be able to be reachable twenty four seven. When it's like that's like fifteen year old problem, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I think and what it does is it just constantly. I think we're we're born and created to live in a cadence of sevens, to live in a week, to live in a rhythm, to live in something they're coming back to over and over again. You know, crops are like that, land is like that, the earth is like that, everything's like that. And I think our bodies are like that too. And so I think doing that kind of um, is really helpful and really kind of just resets you. It gives you a day of delight. It gives you a day of, you know, fun and celebration and joy, you know, that's cause we know we don't just turn off our phones, but we make it like a day of family, a day of fun, a day of joy and stuff like that. I think it's really, really huge and really, really, is necessary, I think, to kind of reclaim our humanness in today's age.
0: Because it helps not only with you personally and your how you feel internally, but it it helps your relationships with your family as well. Is that correct?
1: Yes, exactly. Like, you know, the more we're tied to our phones, the more we're saying no to the people around us. And so I think remembering that and realizing like, man, making actually really good hard boundaries with our phone will allow us to only have more and more flourishing relationships around us.
0: And in this connected world, part of it is You refer to Facebook as the empathy killer. And I really like that. And can you explain to us why you call it the empathy killer?
1: Yeah, because I mean, so empathy, and I talk about this whole in the whole chapter like, empathy is such a gift to us, and it actually gives us what we need, you know, in today's moment real relationships, real seeing people's faces, real you know, people that we would disagree with, but we can still be in relationship with them, go to the store with them, be neighbors with them, you know, go to church with them. And Facebook is kind of an echo chamber where it's allowed. It's one of the first times where we're actually allowed and able to create spaces that are just people that look like us, talk like us and act like us. You couldn't do that, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, a hundred years ago, but you can now. And what that does is it kills the power of empathy because empathy, you actually Need to, and they've actually done tests on this. It's just, it's more devoid of real relationship. And so you're not going to see how that person feels when you say something. You're not going to be there to offer them hope. You're not going to feel as the same when, you know, just type something versus say it to their face. And I think that stuff really matters.
0: And the relationships that we can build person to person when we get off Facebook and we get off social media are so important to us. And it seems like we're kind of losing some of that ability to, to bond with people one on one.
1: Exactly. And so I think reclaiming relationships and what that means is uh, really, really important. And it usually does start with kind of making like the phone and real human relationships tend to be opposites. And so you have to make hard lines here so you can lean into relationships over here.
0: And how do you do that? Like you're into that. You're realizing what this does to you, but you've got a lot of friends, I'm guessing. And then people that's their spouses and their families, it, they also have to get to understand this message. So how, how do you do that? Because a lot of people love their time on Facebook or any other. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying phone.
1: it's evil inherently. It actually is a great tool for kind of keeping distant relationships and kind of keeping tabs on like surfacey things. But when you try to exchange you know, surfacey relationship building with the place I'm going to go for intimacy, vulnerability, community, and life, that's where the breakdown really happens. And so that's what I think a lot of people, people are making that transaction. And that's the hard part, like, let it be what it is, which is just a supplemental tangential gift on the fringes of your life that can maybe allow you to keep in touch with a couple of people and maybe, you know, make some cool relationships with people that maybe have same hobbies with you or whatever. But when we let that come into our center, into our bullseye, that's when it becomes really problematic.
0: Once you realize, though it's becoming problematic, how do you manage it? Because it's tough. Yes. It's a slippery slope. You get on there and you start looking and you're sucked in.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing we do as a family is I have what I call our family tech manifesto. And we actually have like a whole document that has rules for how we'll address and be, you know, interact with tech. And here's why. Because there's, you know, only three, 400 people in a couple of boardrooms in Silicon Valley that affect, you know, billions of people on the earth. And they're spending billions, if not trillions, worth of value and dollars to get us to do something and to take certain type of behaviors that benefit them, right? And because it's at the end of the day, it is a business, all of these things. These aren't, you know, people trying to just give us, you know, good blessing or a nonprofit like Facebook, all these things are businesses with shareholders and you know, and to return investments to their shareholders. And so that's literally the whole point. And so they have an enormous agenda and mission to do that, and that's fine. But unless we have a competing agenda, we will automatically lose. And so I just say you have to have kind of that competing force of like, what what is your agenda for tech? What's your vision for tech? What's the return on your investment that you want to get to your own shareholders, which is you. You're the shareholder of yourself, right, on your own behavior. So we have one like that for our family, which has rules like, you know, we won't bring the phone in the bedroom. You know, they got to be plugged in at night. I can't turn it on for the first hour of the day, turn it on one day a week. I turn it off for one week a year and there's a bunch more in there. But I think, um, you know, we don't put screens. We don't, we don't, we have no cable. We have one TV. All that has is Netflix on it and it is actually on a TV elevator lift. So you press a button and it goes and hides away in a cabinet. So you don't even oh, see wow. it. So, like, so there's things where we, we want to put it at the fringe of our focus because I do believe how you shape your environment and your space totally will create certain behaviors and point you in a certain trajectory. And so if you're centering your entire home on a TV, I bet you'll probably watch it more right? If you're centering your entire home on phones and technology and putting them all over the place and charging, et cetera, then I bet you'll probably be on it more. But if you shape your space in a way that puts it on the fringe, not at the center, and you put more you know, creating rather than consuming at the center, maybe it's music, whether it's coloring, maybe it's books, you put that at the center of your home, that'll change how you behave. And so these are all different things that that's how you start kind of competing with that agenda that then starts putting your life in the trajectory you want it to go.
0: So it really becomes about being very intentional about what you want to do with your time and how you want to approach the technology.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think the word intentional is basically the ethos of the book of like we have to be intentional to carve the life we want to carve – That brings us the joy, flourishing, depth, and vitality we want from our friends, our relationships, our marriages, our life, and our work. You have to be intentional to carve that because our culture isn't taking us there. And so you don't have to be intentional to float down river. You have to be intentional to swim upstream.
0: (laughs) There you go. Just ask a stick, right? (laughs) They'll tell you. Exactly. Now, you say that in order to successfully focus on the meaning in our lives, we really have to tune out the noise and distraction that's around us. And that's so much easier said than done. Because we are so distracted these days and there is so much noise. So what are some ways that we go about doing that?
1: Yeah, I think same thing. I mean, as the phone thing of like start implementing small, really small practices that actually cultivate you in the right direction. So instead of saying like, oh, yes, I believe that. That sounds awesome. And then, you know, trying to be silent for a full day, you know, tomorrow, try to take 15 seconds where you turn off your phone. And think um, maybe about people you love and you know or things and goals and for me you know I, that's usually me kind of when I'm opening the scriptures and all that and I talk about in the book mr. Rogers has had a great practice where he would start every single meeting ever for 30 years including meetings he haven't even had with the president and the cabinet when he was invited there with 60 seconds of silence that was his actual ritual every meeting had to start with 60 seconds of silence thinking about one person who has greatly impacted you and why you're thankful for them And I think starting that, like those kind of small rituals and practices really allows you to kind of start to see the change and the difference you're looking for.
0: And how have you found that that's changed you to do things like that and implement those practices?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it makes you a lot more of a non-anxious presence. I think if you're not cultivating silence, you're kind of like, for lack of a better term, you're kind of like flimsy and flaky and hollow and Reactionary And just kind of this, you're not dense, you're not centered, you're not anchored. And so I think that is really, really important. And that's the difference I've seen is the more I'm stepping into that practice, the more I'm able to be present and proactive, not reactive in
0: my own life. And that speaks to something else that you talk about because you talk about how our roots or our principles give us meaning. You know, but today, boy, we seem very rootless in a lot of ways and people are looking for their purpose. And I do think that a lot of the distractions and a lot of the noise have taken us away from that quest uh, because we get caught up in all the things that are going on around us instead of being able to sit down, take the time and identify really what we want, what our purpose is where our roots are. So how do you recommend that someone goes about identifying what their reason for being here is?
1: Yeah, I think I would probably say there's a lot I would answer to that one. I would say probably one of the the more beneficial things you can do is instead of trying to shoot for the moon of like this is what the dream and this is the hope what are you doing right now and how can you love people better in that because when we love people really well when we go about our day not trying to consume from other people and extract from them but actually live in love and live in sacrifice it sounds counterintuitive but that's where true joy is at and so i say do that with and another way to put that is what makes you come alive what do you do that you feel like makes you come alive and you can love people well in it, that's usually a good collision of where you can start finding that space for yourself.
0: Yeah, because it's a great thing to ask people at a party or when you're meeting people. uh, You know, we always ask, like, what do you do? And it's a lot of fun to ask them, what do you do for fun? And what I've noticed more recently is when you start asking that question, they think it's going to end with, what is it that you do? And they start gearing up about, talk about work. But when you add that for fun, there's kind of this hesitation because a lot of people are like, I'm not really having fun right now. I'm busy. I'm like always on 24 seven. So I think that's something that's really interesting. Um, You know, people aren't necessarily sure of what it is that they really even enjoy doing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it does take time and it does take space. But I also think I just think sometimes we try to shoot for the moon. You know, we try to the reason we can't figure out that question a lot of times is because we're trying to think of the dream we have 10 years from now when it's like, no, no, there probably is some type of way and space for you to you know, love others well, sacrifice and find that flourishing and that meaning right now. But sometimes it's not as flashy as we think.
0: Yeah. And one thing that you talk about is that you're a big fan of saying no. And you write about this. Can you tell us why you love that word so much and why it's so beneficial?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's just pure math, right? Like we don't have any more hours in the day than someone did 500 years ago, but we buy uh, light years have more accessibility to people to ask us of things, and so that's just pure math of like we're going to get asked more of us than people were 500 years ago. But yet yeah, they didn't have any more hours, or we don't have any more hours than them. But they clearly still were able to fill their day 500 years ago. So like unless we are saying no, you'll just go crazy. Basically, the only option is to say no more because we're we're able to get asked more, right? And our days can't stretch. So it's it's honestly I know it sounds a weird way to answer it, but that's how I think about it. I'm just like. That's just like, it has to be that way. Like it's, you know, we're more reachable, we're more accessible, but yet our days can't grow. There's only 24 hours. So like, unless we just say no more, then constantly as we go into this future of connectivity, that's just going to kill us unless we understand that's how it is.
0: So how does someone learn to say no? Because it's hard. It's hard when that's not been your norm, when you're used to saying yes to everything or you feel like you have to say yes to everything.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you got to have frameworks. If people don't have frameworks for their own life and mission, then yeah, you'll say you'll serve everyone else's life and mission. So what do you like to do? What do you want to do? What trajectory are you on? What do you feel like your calling is? What do you enjoy? Where do you want to sacrifice and serve other people? Like make a priority list of your life, marriage, kids, job, etc. And what would that look like? And If something comes in, put it through those filters. Does it serve these things? If not, then I probably should say no. Because if not, then you'll just be going off and doing things that don't really matter and are actually... Perfect.
0: Well, Jeff, we're going to come back in just a couple seconds. We're going to tell people a little bit more about you, more about your book and where they can get it. But thank you so much for coming and sitting down and uh, talking about it with us.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. You, You can join the resistance at some level, you know. There's an active mindset you can have about... Carving and crafting the life you want and not in a sense of like, you know, be a millionaire and do that. But like, but actually like for depth, like the relationships you want, you can have, you know, if you're burned out, you don't need to be burned out. You have permission to carve this life of intentionality, but it does take work and you have to kind of put one foot in front of the other.
0: Perfect. Well, Jeff, we're going to come back in just a couple seconds. We're going to tell people a little bit more about you, more about your book and where they can get it. But thank you so much for coming and sitting down and uh, talking about it with us.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: That was Jeff Bethke talking to us about how to embrace a slower life for greater meaning. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff and his book, To Hell with the Hustle, Reclaiming Your Life in an Overworked, Overspent, and Overconnected World, download a free chapter, or learn more about where to find Jeff online, please visit us at livehappynow.com and we'll give you more information. We hope you're already a subscriber to Live Happy Now, but if you're not, you can find us on the Pandora Podcast Network, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Just look for us on your favorite platform and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. That is all we have time for this week. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.